I think Marcus Rashford saved Manchester United. Let me explain. Watford have just signed uh, Ashley Fletcher, a kid who came through at Man U. And the story is Ashley Fletcher was injured. Had he been fit, he would have played against Midtjylland. Because he wasn't, Marcus Rashford came in, scored on his debut, played against Arsenal, scored against Arsenal. The rest is MBE's books and great representation of Black Britain. Luck is so important for the dream factory. Um, and you've written in the next big thing about some kids. Um, John Bostock, for instance, he should be the England captain by now. But he isn't because of several different things. Uh, and I suppose we've talked about industrialization. Enriching and damaging are the two we need to do next. And because I like to end on a high, we will do enriching later. So the amount of potential damage that can be done seems to loom large in your books. Of course, in this one, you've got to deal with the pederasty, the bullying, um, the proliferation of agents. Is there any one aspect that's the worst of all that stands in the way of the Dream Factory? The, the one that kind of overshadows it all, it's the numbers, it's the, the, the attrition rates that are necessitated by the sheer numbers of, of young people the system holds. Um, so anytime you've got 12,000 boys chasing the same dream, chasing a door that's closing for all of them or, or desperately trying to squeeze through at the other end, I think that that's what it would always come back to is the kind of the root of it all. And it, it ties into the industrialization of it and, and the kind of the way the machine drags these these players in, choose, choose up those it doesn't want and discards them. I think that is kind of kind of the root of it. That is the, the most alarming thing and that is the thing I think unless that is addressed, there's always going to be these high attrition rates and there's always going to be the knock-on effects of that, the struggles um, and the the gap in the uh, effectiveness of the aftercare they receive. It doesn't seem to be something that is, that is on the agenda especially. Um, so it's it, it's going to perpetuate for, for as long as it's allowed to, as long as this arms race for talent, as I mentioned in the book. It, it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing. These clubs are all vying for the best prospects. While, while they might all agree that signing players um, from, from the under-9s level is too young and clubs on the continent are, are, are moving away from that, that sort of model and clubs in this country too, like St. Brentford and Huddersfield aren't taking players on as, 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 um, as they used to a step away from the modern academy system. Can Brentford not have an academy? If they're a Premier League side, there is a Brentford B team, which is the development squad, but can they get away with not having an academy if they're Premier League? Yes, it's, it's entirely their choice. They don't have to participate in the EPPP Elite Player Performance Plan um, guidelines. That's what they stepped away from to do their own thing. They felt that not only was it a money pit, but uh, they will claim that their their model of having a B team, which sees them recruiting only players of age 16 and up, only in small numbers, and only those who they believe have the genuine chance of, of making it in their first team. What they, they then do then is they will they will claim they no longer participate in this yeah. um, this industrialization of youth development this this mass market of, of young players who are sucked in and discarded by the system they're stuck away from that I remember saving themselves I remember being on a train in West London and there was a kid who may have just come back from seeing Brentford and it turns out he was like an under 15s player and I got into conversation with the mum about, well, what's Brentford don't have an academy? And he said, well, it's, she said, I think it's a good, from memory, it's good for him to do this, 
but ultimately he is going to go into university and have football just as a hobby. I know um, a guy called James Cragen. I don't know him, know him, but James is a pro footballer, uh, came through Preston, went to Edinburgh University, played for the side, um, and then when he wants to, he can go into business or if he gets injured, he can stop playing football for a bit. Uh, certainly, are you seeing more... I'm going to name Will Donkin here. That story is lovely because um, I just you mentioned him in passing, uh, and I looked him up. This is the Chinese Taipei International. Will Donkin. Yeah, eating educated. Unreal. It's like Lord Kinnaird. Uh He's played for Chelsea and <laughs> Palace and Barnet in the youth ranks. I think he's at a Maltese club. Yeah, no, he's interesting. He was he was at, at Crystal Palace when I spent the day there, and I. As you said, I mentioned him in passing just to illustrate the, uh, the diversity of Palace because being in that South London heartbed that they're right in the heart of, um, you had, uh, as I mentioned, you had Ryan Innes, a player who uh, came from nearby from a very difficult um, difficult neighbourhood and a very, very difficult upbringing that had brushes with the law had kind of in many ways been forced to grow up, grow up too young and um, to take on a lead role in the care of his, of his younger siblings. Um, so he was sat just a few yards across from Will Duncan, who by all accounts had a much more privileged upbringing, being, as I said, he's an educated, a Chinese Taipei international. And it was just, yeah, it was to illustrate the point that um, the academy manager, Gary that was making, um, that he, he had had to learn how to deal with people from different backgrounds and how that was becoming an increasing part of his role as academy manager, uh, particularly uh, the manager of an academy in such a, an area rich in diversity as, as, as uh, South London. Yeah, it is a, a, a proper hotbed. And Mike Calvin does start at the Afewi Centre with Stedman Scott um, when Nathaniel Klein came through once upon a time. And then you go up to Middlesbrough, because of the hotbed up in North Yorkshire. But at the elite level, um, reading Fergie's fledglings, it's not just good enough uh, to be the best on your street. You've got to be the best in the area, in the whole catchment area. And then you're flung in with players from around the world. Uh, You mentioned the United Youth Academy and the foreign under-18s who came in before Brexit. But you also talked to, is it Derek Langley? Yeah. You've got to tell this story. I mean, it's all in the book, but can you summarise his kind of banging head against wall? <laughs> yeah, sure. So Derek was, um, for around 16 years, I think, from 2000 to 2016, he was the um, head of youth recruitment um, at Manchester United. Um, so he dealt with all the academy signings. He oversaw a network of scouts. I believe he had around 80 scouts working under him and the scale of the globe for the latest talents. Um, and he, uh, for many years, was, was very happy in the role and, and believed they had a, a, a kind of an old-school system that, that worked for him very well, whereby if he saw a player he thought was worthy of pursuing, he'd knock on Alex Ferguson's door, get the nod of approval, and then would be cleared to go, or he'd do the same with David Gill. But when um, the, the two of them stepped out from their positions, when when uh, Ferguson retired in 2013, Langley felt his job became a lot more difficult. He encountered a lot more red tape and a lot less competence, essentially, within the United hierarchy. Um, so his job was essentially the same in terms of going and spotting the best talents and identifying them and pursuing them. But he found the task of managing upwards at that point uh, became quite prohibitive to what he was trying to do. So 
he would go and see Edward Wood and he'd get told that he needed to go and see the club secretary, then he'd, he'd go and see the technical director, he'd be sent around from pillar to post, he would say, and then before he knew it, he'd lost the, the player he was looking for several times over because another team had moved, moved more quickly. There were a couple of key examples he cited as well when I interviewed him. He mentioned the Ajax trio of Frank de Jong, Matthijs de Ligt and um, Danny van der of course, is now at United. He identified them as young teenagers before they reached the first team. He wanted to go after them. But again, the uh, the red tape he encountered and the, the unnecessary length of the process that, that had been put in place meant that that was never able to, to come to fruition. I think by the time that they could have made the concerted approach to the uh, the three had kind of begun to establish themselves at the first team level it would have been much more expensive to, to, to purchase and had much wider interest than, than they would have had otherwise um, and Dale Makano was, was the big one he of course has recently signed with Bayern Munich from RB Leipzig but at the time Langley first encountered Makano he was a 16 year old centre back um, playing in France uh, for a club called Liefering or Liefering I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it but they, they spotted him they uh, agreed a fee with the club they'd had the player in for negotiations he said they spent five hours negotiating with the player's family and their, their lawyer at Carrington had everything agreed he thought that was the end of it he thought they were going to sign this promising young centre-back but lo and behold a couple of days later the family changed representative and came back and wanted to negotiate a higher fee and Langley's was aghast and what happened why I thought we had everything agreed and then he learned that the uh, club secretary had failed to get the agreement in writing he left it as a verbal verbal agreement they ended up losing out on that play he went to sign for Red Bull Salzburg for more money and then uh, just a couple of years down the line now he was a near £50 million defender um, wanted by many of the the top clubs in the world so yeah it's just an example of how uh, things changed at United. The processes became a lot less smooth than they had been in prior years. It led to them missing out on some some really top talents. Yeah, interesting that uh, Derek saying Edward Wood was clueless about football hasn't been uh, deleted by lawyers, which means it must be true. Or evidence supports yeah. the fact that Edward Wood, who is now the former executive vice uh, of Manchester United, the, but they're undergoing. This big change at the moment. I think they've got a new director of football who's come in. But ultimately, if Upamecano had come in, United wouldn't have struggled as much at the back. They got Lindelof and Bailly and Maguire. They spent a lot of money. They had to buy Pogba back. But talking about United makes me think of two players. Lucas Moura, Alex Ferguson said, we tried to sign him, but we're not paying £50 million for a teenager. And the other is Ravel Morrison, who is always, always going to be the player of the era in that he was even more naturally talented than Marcus Rashford. And yet Marcus stood on the straight and narrow and Ravel did not. It's so important to have a life free of distraction. Do you think coaches can take the kid aside and almost overrule what they're going through and saying, do you really want to be a professional player, son? Or do you think some players are just, it's either not worth the hassle or the time or you simply can't get through to the troubled kid? Um, I think with Morrison, he's someone I've, I've long been fascinated by. Um, I'm actually working on um, a piece about him at the moment. And I did speak to uh, Tony Whelan about him because Tony had worked with him at United uh, for, for many years and 
I think there's, there's, there's a large misconception around Morrison as being a kind of bad egg, a bad influence, um, a wayward young person. Um, Whelan was very quick to emphasize just what a, a lovely, caring young, young man he, he was. Um, but he felt that you know, the club did everything they could to get him, as you said, on a kind of straight and narrow path. But I think circumstances, the circumstances of his life were always playing against that. He came from a very difficult upbringing. I think there were things like learning difficulties involved as well, whereby the absorption of information um, yes. was perhaps more difficult for him than it is for others. Um, so while he did have all the natural talent in the world, I've, I've spoken with a lot of people who've worked with Ravel. He's, as I said, someone I'm deeply fascinated by. Um, I've interviewed his, his youth coach from Fletcher Moss, who was saying that he could have been anything he wanted to be. He could have been he was as talented as Messi you know he, he had absolutely everything with the ball at his feet but then I've spoken with, with coaches who've worked with him at first team level people who worked with him when he went alone to Birmingham people at United there was I think perhaps a bit of a disconnect there between what he was able to absorb and from a sort of tactical standpoint yeah I mean most reports of Ravel from people who've worked with him are glowing they I spoke with people who, who worked with him several people who worked with him at, at Osterson when he went to play in Scandinavia for six months and um they just glowed about what a really nice, nice guy he is, nice, caring person he is. He befriended the kit man there who was a refugee from Sudan. He offered to fly him back to see his family. He he bought him an iPad so that he could watch TV when they had the long coach journeys on the way. He bought shirts for his fans that he saw in the street. He saw a young fan in the street one day who had, I think the fan, um, shortly after Morrison had signed and had Morrison number ten or whatever number he wore at Austin on the back of his the back of her, I think it's the old shirt. Um, but Morrison intended to have Ravel on the back of his shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, had, uh, he, he corrected the, the shirt. So she said, "Okay, let's go to the club shop together. I'm going to buy you a new one. We'll have the correct printing done on it." So just you know, the, the, the kind of the, the kind and gentle soul that he appears to be is really not often portrayed. In, in the public sphere, um, he has obviously had his missteps, his his, um, his scrapes with the law and whatnot, and he's had issues around timekeeping. But I think it's it's just a really sad story of a boy who came from a really difficult background, um, an underprivileged upbringing, and um, I think rather this is again something that a lot of people who've worked with him have said to me, rather than looking at him as being this great talent that has gone to waste. He's actually, to some degree, a success story because he's able to have a career in the game. Mm-hmm. I, was, um, I was about to say, you know, he's, he's just been to West yeah. Ham. You're aware he's training with Derby. So if he plays under Derby, Wayne Rooney yeah. or whatever's going on at that club, um, then he may well have played this week. Um, he's got a great highlights reel. Um, but ultimately, he is going to be the one fascinating figure. Where will this piece be yeah. published? Uh, it's going to be with Optus Sport the Australian um, rights holders for the Premier League um, oh, they yeah, commissioned me to, to look into Morrison because um, yeah, I've spoken to dozens of people who work with him and yeah I think his, his case goes back to that point of being as a coach having to be valuable and being sensitive to people's backgrounds um, just like Carius uh, at Crystal Palace explained to me for the book you've got to kind of this sort of sergeant major one size fits all approach I don't think it's quite fit for purpose anymore. And, and Morrison, I guess, would be a, a case in point. You've got to try and innovate and, and adapt, um, even if ultimately there might be the odd case or two where you might be on a hiding to nothing in the end. Um, 
but it's all part of that, that learning curve and being, as I said, being, being adaptable and sensitive to the different situations of the young people you encounter. Lilla Shaw would have turned 40 years old next year. Lilla Shaw was where young English talent went uh, in the 80s and 90s. Michael Owen, Emma Heskey, uh, Gascoigne would have been there. Joe Cole, famously you write about. That then morphed into the elite player performance plan with the academies. And you say that there are two aspects of EP3 that people didn't like. Cost a lot of money, which is not good when you're running fine margins football club. And then the tribunal aspect. Uh, If you're a young player who has come through an academy, there are various sell-on clauses that get involved. And it just seems like asset management. Do young players know that they're being treated as assets rather than human beings? That's a good question. Perhaps not, I guess, but they, they, some might be surprised to learn um, just how clinically they're being spoken of um, in boardrooms and things when it comes to hierarchies at clubs looking at the sustainability of their academies and, and looking at the need to, to sell players to justify their academy operation. Each rule, Triple P, the Elite Player Performance Plan that came in in 2012 to update the old charts for quality that Howard Wilkinson drew up in the late 90s, which was the essentially the blueprint for the modern academy system, what it did, it, it, it um, assigned uh, a fixed compensation system. So every player signed to an academy um, from the age of under nines right through to until they reach professional level um, has a fixed price tag. So it, it, the, the aim of that is to negate the need for, for tribunals and long drawn out disputes over transfer fees for young footballers and to not have players caught in limbo between clubs who can't agree a fee. But um, at the same time, a lot of the smaller clubs feel that these, this valuation system undervalues their best talent and leaves them liable to being cherry-picked by the bigger clubs who'll just come along and want to stockpile all the best talent. So that's kind of where, where the wrangling and the, and the dispute comes from at that end. Yeah, and I remember there was Taiwo and Woods, two guys from Leeds that went to Chelsea. That's the kind of thing that the tribunal was supposed to bring to an end, those disputes. And then you had the uh, Solanke deal when he went from Chelsea to Liverpool, Liverpool had to pay £3 million. The, the damage is that if you are a top-tier club, let's, let's say Brighton or Watford, for, the, for argument's sake, Watford, we need a homegrown player uh, in our squad. There aren't... We need eight, but we've, we're having to basically buy old United players. We've got Cathcart, Fletcher, Cleverly and Foster, and they are four of our homegrown players. Uh, we had a guy called Tommy Hoban who had terrible injuries. He's, I think he's at Burn, Barnsley or someone now. Watford recently have had the sons of Mauricio Potocino, Dennis Burkamp, and Dennis Wise. Dennis Wise's son, Henry, um, we think will make his debut this year. Do you, my question is, will Manchester City have the first fully homegrown 11 of the Premier League era? Only academy products in their eleven. Because they're the most likely to. I know Palace can. I'd highly doubt it. Just because, again, it was something that, that I mentioned a bit in the book. The While City have arguably the, the best facilities and the highest funded academy and the greatest programme, um, they also have one of the narrowest pathways because they're, they're pumping exponentially more funds into their first team because they're, they're driven towards immediate success. Um, Young players don't don't guarantee immediate success. It's, it's a safer bet to, um, to bring in a sixty million pound import from Atletico Madrid or from Juventus uh, than it is to to yeah. to give the time and faith. Uh, How annoyed? 
how annoyed must Eric Garcia be? You're at Man City. You're getting around the first team squad. Ruben Diaz comes in, wins Footballer of the Year. No wonder you'd sod yeah. off back to Spain. So not even exactly. the imports yeah, can get played. So that whole City, uh, I mean, City aren't the only example, but they are the, the kind of most um, obvious one. But that, that drive towards immediate success uh, and a high-level investment in the first team then becomes a competing interest to the academy. Um, so they kind of, it works against your academy in some way. So while City have um, have built this great academy system with, with most wonderful facilities and they have that, the bridge that runs between their academy stadium and the Etihad is this wonderful metaphor for what they want to do with the young players coming through. Um, yeah, the, the, the desire for the first team to, to have immediate success uh, is kind of directly competing against uh, their need to bring through young players and justify their, their whole academy programme. And of course, Man City will point to their first team squad and go, Foden, and walk away, drop yeah. the mic. But that's not good enough. That's one guy. The amount of money you're putting in. Matondo, gone. Tosin, gone. He was supposed to be a first team player. What happened to him? Rory Delap's son. Uh, I think he's spending this season on loan. There's a chap called Doyle who made his debut, was it last year? Uh, these kids are very, very talented, but they're going to need football. It's no good just playing development football. I suppose, I'm not even going to ask you if you're in favour of the under-23 league being scrapped. I, I haven't given it much thought, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, what, what I will say is, um, and again, it's something that, that I, uh, I wrote about, but Foden was kind of the canary down the coal mine for City's whole academy uh, in many ways because he was the one who's been there since he was six. He had... He's been long cited as an example to the players who've come behind him in the academy of how you do things, of the attitude you need. Of you know, he had they were constantly told that he did everything right, he did all the things asked of him, and he also had all the ability in the world. So if he wasn't able to then go on and crack the first team, then what hope would anybody else have? So I think it was really important for, for City to be able to continue to not only attract players but to make to retain them. Uh, to be able to to be able to point to Foden, as you say, as the example of of the player who's made it through. Even though um, ideally there will be <laughs> there, will, there will be more than just the one. But yeah, it's, it's interesting as well. You mentioned John Bostock earlier. When I spoke to John after my first book, we were just chatting about um, about Chelsea's academy because at the time it was before Paul Lampard came in, it was before their transfer ban. So they had um, this great, hugely productive academy, winning the youth cup every year, but no, none of the players were getting through to the first team. Uh, and Boston looked at it from an interesting perspective, and I find it especially interesting as he, as somebody who'd been there and taken a different path, he, he, he was a Palace fan as a young boy, but he, he chose the clubs that had a pathway for him, making his debut at 15 and then going to Spurs and playing there and becoming their youngest ever player at 16. And he said that he's not especially critical of the, of the Chelsea approach or what would now be, I guess, the City approach, because while you might not get a career at, at City or at Chelsea, uh, few clubs go as far towards guaranteeing a career in the game. Few few clubs provide the footballing education that, that City and, and Chelsea do. So it was interesting to me to learn that a young player might look at it from that perspective and think, okay, yeah, the pathway is, is frightfully narrow here, but the, the the footballing education I'm going to get is going to stand me in really good stead and I might have a better chance of a sustained career in the game. I look if at I go it to a Chelsea or a City versus others. Yeah, I look at it as a workplace. If you're going in every day, training as Raheem Sterling has been with De Bruyne, Silva, Aguero. If you're Rashford, you're training with Pogba, 
Martial, Mata. If you're at Saka at Arsenal, uh, you are training with some good players. Mesut Ozil, for instance. You're learning so much there, but the difficulty is to put that into practice at elite level where it matters. Under-23 doesn't matter. My argument is the Youth Cup does. The UEFA Cup, less so. I mean, really? How much is um, James Garner, who went on loan to Watford and couldn't make it, how much did he learn playing Europa League football in these dead rubbers? Whereas someone like Scott McTominay, who was mentioned early on, do you say, in fact, I've actually got it here quite brilliantly, uh, for every Marcus Rashford, there might be 10 Scott McTominays. For every Scott McTominay, there will be hundreds gone from the game long before the bright lights of Old Trafford Theatre of Dreams come into view. So they're there, uh, but it's just about the pathway and keeping them on track for things. And also the importance of just good coaches. And I'm not surprised you go long on what Alex Inglethorpe and Tim Jenkins have been doing at Liverpool. Did Liverpool impress you the most in terms of what the coaches are doing? They certainly seem to be one of the leaders in what seems to be movement towards this individual-focused approach that a lot of clubs have since adopted. I spoke uh, you know, with Michael Beale and, and the people you mentioned there as well, and um, Neil Critchley, focusing very sort of specifically on Trent Alexander-Arnold's development and using his transition from midfield to right back and as, exa- as an example of how keenly they focus on, on the needs of each individual. And yeah, it was really interesting to learn how that works for them on a day-to-day basis and, and why they view that as being the way to develop players. And then to see to go to a Colchester and find out that they, they have an almost identical philosophy and to learn about how they implement it. And also to think about, um, in, in the very same chapter, to juxtapose Alexander-Arnold's development with that of Marcus Rashford, who 20 miles away at Carrington was going through a very very similar thing at a, at a similar age, you know, developing from a, a winger or a number 10 into a striker, which was a position in which he made his debut for United and, and thrived early on. So, yeah, it was interesting to, to think about, to, to learn um, about Liverpool's approach I don't know whether it will be considered influential. I don't know how much direct influence they had on other clubs adopting a similar philosophy, but they were certainly at the vanguard of that approach um, and still seem to be. Well, and of course, they've got the money and they have that charismatic manager who I'm sure Alex Inglethorpe can knock on his door. And I'm not going to do it, Jürgen, but wow. Uh, And they will talk to Jürgen and and Jürgen will say, yeah, 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 Uh, bring some of the kids over to train with us. But at the same time, they're doing what Chelsea and Man City are doing. They're making money from academy products. Grujic, Wilson, and a couple more. They're trying to sell squad players and less than squad players, like under-23 players, because it's asset management. They're also trying to deal with Henderson's contract. But yes, the Liverpool situation is fascinating. They're obviously reaping the rewards of doing well in Europe for the last five, six years, which helps. One thing that is sad is the fall of traditional scouting that Mike Calvin so brilliantly chronicled in The Nowhere Men. Um, And it does seem that we have, at the elite level, entered a new era of data management and um, science, data science, rather than the old nous of a scout. Do you feel sad, having spoken to some of these guys? It was sad to learn how they feel about it, uh, certainly. So they definitely feel kind of elbowed out of the game to an extent. And I think scouts, um, more so even than, than the young players who were in the system in their masses, scouts seem to be the most disposable people 
within the academy world. Um, most of them aren't on full-time contracts. They work part-time. They work informally. They, they work on a kind of week-to-week, game-to-game basis. And um, it seems their expertise is increase, increasingly undervalued, or at least that's how they feel from the ones I spoke with. I think it's a, it's a difficult world for the old school scout to adapt to because there's a, a vast disparity in the, the skill sets of uh, a scout who's spent decades trudging touchlines and looking into his crystal ball to think about not just how good a player is now but how good they're going to be in the future and then this new generation of, of player recruitment analysis and, and the laptop gurus there's, there's this real disconnect between those two worlds and I think some kind of middle ground needs to be needs to be found um, and I think that's where that's one of the most successful clubs do. I don't think you can rely entirely on the the eye test anymore without without backing it up with with solid evidence in data form and vice versa. Um, so while I think scouting probably at the at the, the younger age groups certainly will still very much be done predominantly on the eye test. But the, the closer you get towards the first in the the more the traditional scout it seems is is a dying breed. Well, I suppose it is when you've got clubs hoovering up six-year-olds and hoping that they develop appropriately. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. yeah. I've just noticed in the acknowledgements you thank Frank Smith. Is that Frank Smith X of the Watford Observer? It is, yeah, the very same. How's he doing nowadays? I haven't thought of him for ages. I know he moved into <laughs> yeah. journalism, other journalism. Yeah, he was my editor at Football Whispers when, yeah. I, when I was a, a senior writer there. I spent two years working for Frank. I think he helped facilitate one or two of the interviews or helped me put me, put me in touch with someone. That's why he's uh, in the acknowledgements. He's doing well. I, I don't know um, whether it's something he's, he's said publicly now, but I think he's just took up a role uh, working in the media team for the England national team of the FA. Oh. Uh, so he's doing really well. He'll, he'll have a very fun trip to Hungary in a few weeks if he goes. Um, and then the, and then a trip to Qatar. Hooray. Uh, but you also thank the usual suspects, Danny Taylor, David Conn, Jamie Jackson, Jim White, and then the fathers of Ian Brewster and Mason Mount. So given that you talked to Tony Mount, did you send him a supportive message just after the final the other week? Uh, I messaged Tony after the Champions League, but I figured that I think probably everyone in his contacts book and more would be messaging messaging him after the Euros uh, but I, I was in contact with him just the other, the other week uh, when he was on, on, on his holiday uh, but yeah he was someone who, who I interviewed for the book I've interviewed a couple of times and I thought it was really really important to get a perspective of not only a parent but of, of a, the parent of a boy who was highly sought after throughout his time um, in the academy system and to understand the pressures and the influences that can pull at a parent of a, of a talented young player it's such a useful book, The Dream Factory. You mentioned about an hour ago, I was due to pick up on this, young girls, girls and boys, and you talk about how to develop young girls and you conclude that they just need equal opportunity. We're talking in the middle of the Olympics where the GB women, I think, well, America have wobbled. So I guess we're favourites. And by the time this goes out, you will know if Britain has won the gold medal in the football. But next year, there's a Euros. Again, England, one of the favourites for that. Are you going to watch um, much of the Women's Super League this year? Now it's got the Barclays sponsorship behind it. Lots of money. I'll try to. Uh, I watch uh, a wide variety of sports. Uh, um, football in general isn't, isn't one I watch a huge amount of. But um, yeah, I'll give it as much attention as any other league at the moment. Because there are some kids coming through there. Uh, Georgia Stanway, Jess Carter... Are just um, they're going to get the rewards of people paying more attention to football in a way that Alex Scott 
could not, and Kelly Smith before that, mm. they couldn't get rich because of it. Yeah, it's long overdue, this, yeah. this level of investment and interest in the game. It's great to see. One thing that is also overdue is a correct support system for kids released at 14 and 15, because I didn't realise, well, oh, it's obvious in the name, the PFA is not the kids' PFA, it's the professional organisation. So you have to sign pro terms in order to get the Professional Footballers Association to pay attention to you. It's all in the book, so I want to direct people towards it. But in about 30 seconds, can you talk about the importance of PlayersNet? Yeah, so it's basically um, an independent advice service for uh, the parents or, or players themselves who have any kind of dispute or want any kind of advice on how to act um, if, they, if they've encountered something uh, that displeases them within the game, if they feel mistreated anyway, if they feel um, a club isn't acting in their best interest, if they're unsure about contracts. So it's really important to have services like PlayersNet. And again, um, I spoke to, to Pete Lowe from PlayersNet, and he's another person who has tried to try to work with the game on, on some level to, to address some of the issues around welfare and aftercare. And again, has faced a lot of resistance. Stupid. Again, I was, to- I was talking with someone yesterday about the kind of records that go on the radio. Just, you've got to move the needle. You, you have to just keep pushing of Jess Phillips in government with the domestic violence bill, domestic abuse bill. Just push against a door. Keep pushing the Daily Mail with the dementia um, nonsense. Things will change. It'll take a long, long time. At the moment, the big issues are racism and mental health. But other issues will still be there. We're human beings. That's what Mike Calvin's entire body of work is about. These are human beings, not avatars. And even though some of these young players may end up as avatars in FIFA, in real life, if you cut them, they bleed. Um, who's your favourite footballer that you wrote about or spoke to in the Dream Factory? Uh, Marcus Rashford. Uh, Correct answer. For, for obvious, for obvious reasons, <laughs> yeah. Um, do you remember that? four-day period where he scored four goals. Yes, absolutely, vividly, yeah. Um, and I was really pleased to be able to speak with um, Franz, uh, uh, pardon my uh, pronunciation, his last name, Franz Hoek, Franz Hoek, uh, the Dutch coach who was an assistant to um, Louis van Gaal uh, in that era, so he was able to kind of paint a really vivid picture of what it was like to be in the United changing room uh, for, for the Michelin game and, and how Marcus was prepared for that and how he kind of took on the mantle as you said there were, there were injuries that, that led to his um, unlikely and unexpected debut in that game um, yeah it was great to see uh, you know, a young player thrown into the fire and to really sort of thrive away play with fire get burned or become the fire yourself and because the book The Dream Factory is all about collaboration and taking a village I just wanted to embarrass the hell out of you and to read back to you what you've written about your wonderful, encouraging and ever-understanding partner, Sophie, whose support is the foundation upon which not only this book, but my entire career is built. You've written your own wedding toast here. For enabling (laughs) me to find uh, the space in our lives as parents to see through this project, for reigniting my belief in it whenever it threatened to fade for everything. And also thanks to our boy, Dylan. Thank you for taking naps just long enough to allow me to squeeze out an extra paragraph or two. I mean, your, your lad is going to enjoy these books. At some point, he's going to twig that his dad has written some books that are in the bookshops. Yeah, I hope so. He's very nonplussed at the moment. It's not. He, he prefers a book about Peppa Pig or, yeah. or Hey Dougie. 
goes to, you mentioned Hay Dunn, yeah. Mean, Which club is the closest to you? Which club would you take him to in order to watch football? Worcester City? So, yeah, we have Worcester City. Um, I think if, if they're kind of major clubs, it would be Aston Villa. Would be the, would be the closest, I think, for Aston Villa than maybe like the Wolves and West Brom. That's Aston Villa away. FA Youth Cup holders. There you go, yeah, very, very true. You chose oh. one. Louis Barry, he's going to be the next one, but let's not jinx it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they've got a few very good, very good young players there. Uh, well, and they've got the perfect manager, and that's all you need. And they've got an owner whose team has just won, the Milwaukee team have just won the NBA Super League. What's it called? World Series, not World Series. <laughs> what is it called? The NBA title. It's just the title. The NBA title, title. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the NBA um, so they're, they're going great guns. Last thing to say is that Lee Carsley has just been appointed the under-21 coach for England with Ashley Cole as an assistant. Did you run into Lee Carsley when you were up at City? Was he the coach? No, I think he, he'd gone by then. Um, yeah, no, he was already with England. I think, I think I did try to speak to Lee for something, but he wasn't available. Yeah, no, he, he, was, he was already with England by the time mm-hmm. I visited City, I think. And yeah, England under-21s. We've got our best under-21s ever including the likes of Louis Barry, and maybe some of the kids that you've bumped into uh, in the course of writing your book, The Dream Factory, which is out on Polaris now inside the make-or-break world of football's academies. Ryan Valdi, here is your football library card uh, with Hugh McIlvanny's face on it. Thank you very much. Just like the library! Just like the library! 